0: We're going to study the book of Philippians, and if you are going to follow in the notes, we'd be on page 5. But the book of Philippians, that's just to orient you a little bit, particularly if you weren't here for last week when we got started. Uh, This is one of the 13 letters of Paul, of course, but it's one of his prison epistles. He wrote four of them when he's in prison in Rome. um, And it's unique in this sense. This is the only letter that Paul writes where he has really no critical things to say about this church. Uh, I think we can conclude that this is a church that is very dear to Paul. It's very important to him. And as he mentioned, we even saw that last week, they were one of his key supporters. And I don't only mean financial, although that was part of it. Uh, They were just involved with him in so many different ways, apparently. And he has really remarkable things to say about the church. Secondly, in terms of introduction, probably the key word, if you can even talk about that sometimes in an epistle, but certainly one of the key terms of the epistle is joy. He just keeps using it again and again and again. And the other thing about the, the book of Philippians is We have in this book, and it'll take us a while to get there, but in chapter 2, one of the most um, important passages in the New Testament on Christ. And we use this as a passage that helps us to understand uh, who Christ is in terms of his nature. Uh, Fully God, fully man, united one person. And He talks about that uh, as he uses the Lord as an example, so we'll get to that. So it's really an important epistle. But practically speaking, it has tremendous truth to teach us. After the introduction in verses 3 through 8, and that's how I organized um, the outline, is a statement of thanksgiving, obviously to God, but a statement of thanksgiving uh, for the Philippians. And in verse 3, I thank my God, that's a present continuous verb, I am in the continual state of thanking God for you. Every time he brings your name to my mind, I thank him for it. It's a continual thank, but because of their participation with him in all that he did in his ministry. And then verse 6, and that's where we left off last week. So is everybody with me? Trying to orient uh, our thinking here?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to tell you that the chapter and verses that you recommended in Acts Oh, very
0: helpful to me.
1: I read it thoroughly. Good. And what it did is it told how Paul met those mm-hmm. people from Philippi or whatever. Philippi, right. Yeah. And and uh, why he was so loyal to them. That's right. Uh, good, good reference.
0: Yeah. yeah, they had a good, they had a very special place in his heart. That's that's good. that yeah. was Acts sixteen,
1: mm-hmm. verse eleven, to mm-hmm. the end
0: of uh, eleven. That chapter. Yeah. End of the chapter. Yeah, good. Excellent. Now, let's pick up with verse 6. He's thanking the Lord for their participation at Koinonia with him in presenting the gospel. Then he has something to say in verse 6. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's look at this as a timeline. Now, the, word, the, the term you is plural. So he's talking about the people that are in the church at Philippi, many of whom, as Woody correctly said, that you read about in the book of Acts where he planted the church, per, Paul personally led a lot of them to the Savior. But he says, he who began a good work will perfect it, until the day I'm shortening all this okay we have three important terms good work is introduced by began so the word begins means uh, began means the beginning so let's put it right here here's where God began the good work he tells us also it's going to go on until the day Talk about all these. And the word perfect is actually that the problem with bringing that into English and trans uh, bringing that Greek word into English and translating it perfect or perfect is you think and you interpret and you understand that to mean absolutely sinless. You understand what I mean? That's really not the right way to think about that. The verb perfect or the noun perfect. What it really means is he will complete what he started. It has a little bit of a different nuance to it. So let's unpack this and apply this to our lives because this applies to all of us. What's the good work that God began in you? Joel, you're framing a word on your mouth. Salvation. Good. Obviously... And in the context of he talked about the gospel and all that stuff, the work of salvation. Generally speaking, the Bible speaks of salvation as a point in your life. Now, you know, some people, I don't know, I mean, I I know exactly, I can tell you exactly in my life, I can tell you exactly when it happened. Some of you may not be able to do this. Some people, it was just a sense and understanding over time, of the clarity, this is who I am in Christ. I, I do trust him. I do believe in him. I do understand his work for me. But, However, at, 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 at a perspective in terms of God, he looks at it as a point, point. and until the day of Christ Jesus, there's a lot of theology in that, but let's just set some of that aside right now. It's really talking about the return of Christ. So, until that day, and that's kind of the way it's talked about, a lot of things happen all the events that surround the return of Christ. I, I don't really want to get into that. So he's saying from the point you come to trust Christ for your salvation until he comes back, God is in the, perf- in the process of perfecting you. Let's, again, change it into the way I think it should be understood. Completing what he began. So let's get a little deeper. This refers to justification to sanctification. Now if you're not familiar with those terms first and foremost you should become familiar with those terms. They're really important terms in the New Testament. So if you are now being introduced to them from here on out this is your assignment. Make sure you know what these are. My behavioral objective is that from here on out you will be able to demonstrate to me that you understand justification sanctification. That was a teacher talking. God is just saying, make sure you understand the difference. That's all God's saying. So, do you understand what Paul is saying? It's it's really, um, it's a refreshingly comforting, edifying thought. God began something in my life. God's going to complete it. Let's do it one more way. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, in Romans chapter 8 verse 29 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 I think it's verse 16 the Apostle Paul uses the term transformation or the verb transform God is in the business of transforming us to the image of Jesus So if you put all this together and this is another way of talking about sanctification sanctification has a goal that goal is to be transformed into the image of Christ. Now I've just dumped an awful lot on you from one verse but if you and I want to make sure you understand this so don't let me go on to the next verse unless you all understand this but what that verse does for us is it helps us to see What God is, has done, and is doing in our life. God is not passive in this process. God is not some absentee landlord in this process. Pardon those crazy metaphors. He's not some distant entity. He is providentially, intimately involved in every dimension of your life. God has ruthlessly and relentlessly been pursuing you with his grace. If you have put your faith in him, what he has been doing in your life has reached a point of completion, but he has more work to do. So here the result is we're declared righteous. Here the result is we're being transformed into the image of Christ. And God is at work. God is at work in my life. And Paul is just saying... I'm so, I'm so confident of this great truth. And for the Philippians, why he believed it was necessary to remind them of this, I think it's just based on all that they've been doing in their partnership with him, he reminds them, you know, from God's perspective, from God's perspective, this is part of what he's doing. Let me put it another way. That they were involved in partnering with Paul, was evidence of God's work in their life. Not this, but this. Now let's stop and let this distill down so that it can percolate up into some questions. I'm not sure that a metaphor's work here, but anyway. This is the same
1: as the process, but we, you we got say it. it
0: you got it, brother, the process.
1: Right.
0: This is an event, this is a process. When does it end?
1: Christ
0: well, when Christ returns or we die, whichever comes first.
1: Okay. Right.
0: You know what I mean? I mean, you know, gee, all, all, and there's again, there's a reason why he says until the day of Christ Jesus. That, that has enormous significance in the New Testament. But for now, all I want you to do is just see how the Lord looked. This is like, this is like a timeline of our life. It's like, and and, I I don't know that for sure because I don't know uh, most of you very well. I know some of you quite well, but I really don't know any of you real well. But I'm assuming, because you come to a class like this, that you you have made that decision. That's the point in your life. You know that's true. What Paul is saying, because this is true, this also is true. God is at work in your life. And he is perfecting. Uh, I, again, I like it's better because of the way we nuance this. It's better that God is in the process completing what He began, and completing what He began is transforming us into image of Christ. <coughs> and that's a that's a very comforting thing. I'm sorry, I'm I'm on the good side of the crud, as my doctor friend calls it. So, <laughs> but I'm going to hack a bit, and that's kind of. The no, reality of in, it. In this group,
2: some time ago, one of the uh, persons in our group said, "You know," he said, "I don't know that I'm making any progress." And Terry, you're <coughs> to that person, and I just right on line with what Jim's talking about. Said, "You know, I've known you for 25 years, and I can tell you, there's a big difference in your life." And then another person that. Sharing Christ with and he said, you know, someone told me if you couldn't pinpoint the time in your life when you received Jesus Christ <clears throat> this is this person saying it to him, I doubt if you're saved. And and he brought that out and he said, You know, that's always bothered me. And I think Jim is addressing it right there. Mm-hmm. Some people can't say Yeah, you know, I mean I
0: I've known a number of folks who uh, th- there is no question of, of their relationship with Jesus Christ but they just can't specifically identify a point and that's just, and that's okay that's that's really okay because this is this is the perspective of our life from God's perspective, his vantage point alright let's, let's review, do you understand oh Jim, go ahead I find the use
3: of the words good work very interesting mm. In and reflects God's perspective on how he sees what he's doing in our lives and takes some degree of delight maybe Terry in making the change in us just like if we were building a house or something I mean there's if you're doing the there's some delight in that process and mm-hmm.
0: satisfaction mm-hmm. absolutely that's excellent excellent comment God takes delightful satisfaction in what he's doing a real interesting study sometime would be, what's God's methodology in doing this? But that's not what we're going to talk about today. Because it's multifaceted. And I mean, it's, it's going to be different for Fred, and it's for Jim, or Joel, or Woody, or anybody else. It's going to be different. God does not use the same template for everybody. Why? Because he knows us. And he knows the unique things that you can handle, that you can't handle, that will be effective, that won't be affected. And you cannot, you cannot force a template about God's method of sanctification on everybody. You can't do it. Joel. Uh,
3: well, the verse says, he
2: who began a good work you, God, obviously. He said, God yeah, is not distant or, or mm-hmm. inactive or mm-hmm. passive in this role. But I'm guessing that we're not supposed to be either. So
1: what is our role in this sanctification
0: process? Would you turn over? Joel and I had this all planned. This is going to be the segue. <laughs> Turn your page to to chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. The end of verse 12 of of chapter 2 of Philippians. Now, I'm not ignoring the first part of verse 12, but let's just key on in the second part. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, verse 13, because... It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work or to do of his good pleasure. So this verse is telling us about God's work, verse 6. Verse 13 is telling us about God's work and provides the reason why we work. Now don't, don't misunderstand how Paul is using the word salvation there. In the New Testament, the word salvation, from Greek that we translate salvation, can have one of three meanings. In some places it means justification, in some means, places it means sanctification, in some places it means glorification. When Christ comes back and we receive our new resurrected bodies. The context helps you determine it. So, if he's saying work out your justification with fear and trembling, that contradicts everything else in the Bible which says you can't work your way to justification. If it means sanctification, it answers Joel's question. Am I to be passive or active in this process? That was not a rhetorical question. I think I want to be active. Active. We're not passive. We just don't sit here in the chair. We put our faith in Christ, and we say, Okay, Lord, transform me. I'll sit here, and I'll just wait for you to do that. If that's true, then almost every book of the New Testament, 50% of the verbs in the New Testament are commands. Do you understand what I mean by talking grammatically? If 50% of the verbs in the New Testament are commands... And we're to be passive? That's contradictory. That doesn't make sense. We are to be active, but we're active in our pursuit of righteousness. Why? Because verse thirteen. Because God's at work. And so, you know, that's the answer to your question, Joel. I mean, it really is. We are to be. I, I have, you know, I've written a number of books, but I have one I'm working on now. But the one I, after that one's done is going to be entitled "A Strategy for Holiness." I'm tired of so many people having a shallow superficial view of their life in Christ. That they compartmentalize things, they're, they they they're very passive uh, and that's just that's contrary to everything I see in the scriptures. And so anyway, this is this verse, and I'm coming back now to verse 6. This verse is one of the it's so succinct, it, it's almost pithy. I mean, you just incredibly profound truths in a few words. Let's put it one more way. If you want a good summary of what God is doing, verse 6 summarizes it. God begins the good work, salvation, and he will complete it. So that when we stand before Jesus at the famous seat, he will be pleased but we then take that great truth and we actively pursue that path of holiness and righteousness with God because He's at work. Yep. You okay, don't have do you to raise me? your hand, Woody. You? <laughs> you don't have to raise your hand, but no, well, go ahead. I'm
1: your straight man. That's <laughs> <laughs> do you agree that giving into the word and going to church? And- <clears throat> Attending a Bible study is, you know, that's not
0: passive. That's, that's right. That group. is not passive. We are doing that's right. Some of the things. That's just
1: three of the that, things that we could do. That's right. You agree with
0: that? Yes. They are. They are examples of our activism in this role. Talking to God, praying. To, I mean, conversing with Him. That twenty-four-seven, pray without ceasing kind of lifestyle. It is. It is. I believe among many, many, many other ways to think about this in our lives. It is actively involving God in everything I do. That's part of that. Why? Because, my goodness, God's a 24-7 God. God doesn't sleep. God, I mean, God isn't, okay, I'm going to leave Jim alone now for a while. He's on his own. It's okay. I mean, that's not God. And so as I come to understand more and more about him through the study of his word, more and more about what his goals really are, I'm motivated to a greater level of obedience. Because I love him. I see what he's done for me. And so, I mean, that's, this is, Paul is using this opportunity, uh, back down to verse 6, he's using this opportunity to lay on these dear people at Philippi one of the most fantastic truths of edification there is. Remember, remember edification means to build up. I mean, it's just building these people up. You, all that you're doing in participating with me in the gospel is evidence that God is really at work in your life, doing that good work, as Jim talked about. And by the way, whenever you see the word good, and it's referenced to God, it's how God defines good. You know what I mean? Because sometimes we define good in a an American, materialistic, prosperity-oriented way of defining good and I'm that's cynical I shouldn't be that cynical I'm sorry but and but that isn't always the case with the Lord and and it's but it's it's from his perspective I told you this before I I just talked to him yesterday my brother-in-law's dying of this very rare disease and I mean it's it's really taking its toll I, I don't know how much longer he's gonna live but he was in you know, some tears as I called him and, and this is I told him about every four weeks and he's just he you know, he, he knows the Lord and he's strong, his faith. But he says, Why does God why does God keep letting me live like this? Why does he just take me home? I'm ready to go home, I wanna go home. He's tired of the suffering, it's terribly painful and all that. And you know, how do you answer a question like that? And I just said, Tim... What do your grandchildren see when they come over to visit you? what are your two boys? he has two sons what do your two boys see when they come over to visit you? they see a man of faith who walks with God there's trust in God with his illness and they're seeing they're seeing an example of a paradigm of faith a man of faith and he said do you think that's real I mean it was like You know, it's almost like a duh comment, but at the same time, it isn't. I think that's one of the things Tim can do. He can model faith for his grandchildren and his children. That faith in God is not dependent on my circumstances. Faith in God is dependent on who he is, what he's done for me, and where I'm going to spend eternity. He can model something profound for his kids and grandkids. Don't you agree with that? I mean, that's so from God's perspective, what's happened to Tim didn't sneak up on God's blind sign and he missed it. Oh, no, he's sick. Too late. Sorry. You know, I mean, that's ridiculous to even say that way. For reasons that all eternity will say, you know, God, God permits things. It's the only verb that seems to make sense for reasons that we cannot understand. Because I want to tell you something, I get tired of this. People say, you know, you think about a good God. How does your good God allow evil and suffering? I say, okay, I I follow you. That's a tough question. But I want to ask you, how do you explain evil and suffering? Because you have to have an explanation for it. Even if you're an atheist, you have to have an explanation for it. So what's your explanation to it? I'm going to give you mine, but I want you to give me yours. I'm doing a session at a, a, a church here in town uh, for teens. They are reorganizing their whole youth ministry. It's really cool what they're doing. But uh, one of the things I'm going to do is three nights with these it's the parents and their teens together. It's, I've never seen anything like that. But the first session is going to be the questions your teens should be able to answer. Because if they go off to college and they don't go to any kind of a faith-based college, they're going to be challenged with this stuff. So there's some things they've got to be able to answer. And then the next session is going to be biblical questions about Christianity that your teen should be able to answer. And then the third night is going to be some humble parenting tips from a father who doesn't know what he's doing, but I'm going to share them anyway. But I mean, that's really important, and that's part of it. You know, evil and suffering—you've got to have an answer for that. But so does the secularist, so does the atheist, so does the Buddhist, so does the Hindu, so does the Muslim. They have to have an answer for that. I'm kind of tired of that, just pot shots that everybody keeps taking. Richard Dawkins, that's what his favorite thing is. you don't know him, forget it. All right, verse 7. Any other questions? Now here again you see these tender words from, from the Apostle Paul. For it is only right for me to feel or to think, but it's a word of emotion, this way about you. And it is an emotional word, because I have you in my heart, since both in the imprisonment and in the defense of confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. Now, the word partakers in verse 7 is very closely connected to the word participation in verse 5. They both come from koinonia. The fellowship, the intimate, close fellowship. Now, as he says that, for, he uses that phrase, in, um, in my heart, um, that, that's a pastor speaking. That's a pastor speaking there. He feels an, an empathy, a sympathy, a concern, a care, Because, you know, I mean, he doesn't mean that organ that pumps our blood through the body. He's talking about that center, the heart in the Bible is that center of your will, the center of who you are. You are are one of the centers of my life. You're right there. A concern, a pastoral care. Why? Because in the two great events with which they have been involved, his imprisonment, he's in Rome in prison, And in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, those two words are legal terms. Defense, um, and they're they're both talking about his upcoming trial before Caesar, when he's going to to defend and then confirm why he's in jail. He's going to defend his position as an apostle, and he's going to confirm. That is detail, lay out the nature and content of the gospel. So what does that mean? They're participating. What does that mean? It can only mean in prayer and in sending their pastor to counsel Paul. you are going to talk about this later on. They sent their pastor to Paul in prison. His name is Epaphroditus. So he's just saying, no other church did that, but you guys did. So from Paul's perspective and the words that he's using it's like you at Philippi are sitting here with me in prison. And you're sitting here with me as I'm preparing my defense. That's how close they were to him. That's um, pretty amazing. Well, I believe you said that they came to visit
1: him in mm-hmm. prison, didn't
0: you? Yes. I mean, some did. Uh, obviously not all of them. But yeah, he had it was a quasi-house arrest kind of arrangement.
3: So what does this verse then mean for us? Because I mean, obviously, Paul doesn't know me. Not living, is it? Is it the Paul in my life, and something we do, or is it? I mean, I mean, it'd be terrific, wouldn't it, if we could point to somebody who we knew we could say this about? Yeah. yeah.
0: The application of something like this is so varied, Jim. I mean, but. I think it gives us a little bit of an indication of um, what pastoral shepherding, servant care for people really looks like. Um,
3: Maybe it points to what a role that we
1: could
0: play. If somebody's line. Well, it does, and that I'm going to erase this now because you've all mastered this. It's something you have clearly marked in your life. You get rid of them. I'm going to suggest a word here that kind of fit, kind of fits what can uh, applicationally um, apply to something like this in our lives. <clears throat> to be a shepherd, a care, a servant of someone who um, is in difficult situation. Uh, uh, dying of a disease, in prison, or whatever it is, is empathy. That may be captured. What does that mean? Why is that a better word than sympathy? John?
1: Well, you're feeling it personally yourself. You're not feeling sorry for them or their situation, but you've been through that before. You, mm-hmm. if uh, If you've experienced <clears throat> Uh, a disease of some sort, and you know what it is you, you have empathy
0: yeah. it 's more than just sympathy uh, and it 's really it 's kind of a hard term to define but it's this isn 't a great Websterian type of definition, but i 'm putting their shoes on, and I know what it 's like i 'm not only sympathizing with you and you know crying with you i i 'm really there with you. <laughs> And that's the sense of what Paul is saying in verse 7 of this remarkable group of people at, a, at, at Philippi. There was a degree of empathy they felt for Paul and expressed for Paul that he could say, you're, you're koinoneeing with me. I just took a Greek word made it into an English verb. <laughs> but you're koinoneeing with me. You know, uh, in everything I'm doing, it's really really astonishing in the real meaning of that uh, sometimes overused word. I mean, these were very, very close people to Paul. And so he's saying, even when I'm here in prison and I'm preparing for my defense before Caesar, you're with me. That's why I have you in my heart. I mean, he's using language of emotion, and yet it's it's really quite powerful. And that's why he says in verse eight, "For God is my witness." He's taking an oath. That's what that means. For God is he's taking an oath. I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, the word affection is. Can I explain a little bit? It's really, it's, a, it's an interesting word. Because um, if I were to say to Peggy when I get home tonight, Honey, I love you with all my heart. I am demonstrating through my words affection for her. And I tell her I'm going to do the dishes for you tonight. I'm going to iron come on my shirts. So, honey, I'm just—I you know, love you with all my heart. The affection I feel for you, so it's in my heart. In the first century, you would say to your wife, "Honey, I love you with all my bowels." That's what affection is. I love you with all my bowels. Now, my wife, if I were to say that to her, would look at me as if I'm nuts and say, you better change your, your words when you come home to me, because <laughs> that doesn't do anything for me, as a matter of fact. But you see, in the ancient world, they looked at the bowels as the center of the emotion. I, can't, I do not know why that is the case. I haven't been able to find out exactly why. But that's the word he's using here. So he's using a term of intimacy that doesn't fit with the way we talk, figuratively speaking. But I want you to, he's saying something that's extremely intimate, but I want you to notice something else. The affection of Christ Jesus. What's the source of this? Jesus. It's almost like he's saying, I long for you with an emotional intensity that is greater than any human can muster. It's an emotional intensity that's sourced in Jesus. What Jesus feels for us. Why God in Christ Jesus ruthlessly and relentlessly pursues us. Because of his affection for us. That's what Paul's talking about. Does that mean, I mean, this is, When you start to think of it, it's incredibly powerful what he's saying. It's almost unprecedented in the New Testament. And it gives us a sense again of, of um, how deeply he felt in the real emotional meaning of field, how deeply he felt for this church. They were really important to him. And I don't, I, you know, I as I was studying this uh, for today I, I i started to think you know lord i 'm not sure I have ever thought about that kind of an affection and care for people I really care about that I would say it that way i mean i you know I care deeply for a lot of people, not only my wife obviously but I mean I, for a lot of people people aren't family necessarily and and to really say something like that um that's really almost unprecedented. We don't talk like that. And I think some of it, as I've thought about it, kind of meditated on it this morning, as I've been running around and all that, I think it's sometimes due to the shallowness and superficiality of just our lives. We just, we're just not prone to think that way or, or act that way or even feel that way in, in, in our emotion. This is really important to Paul. So I want to, don't go home tonight and tell your wife you love her with your bowels. But tell her, you know, you love her with all your heart. You know, what that really means. We're done with the first paragraph of the first chapter of Philippians. Rich stuff, isn't it? He's thanking the Lord for these people. All right. Let's look at this prayer, which is in verse 9. 11. I want to read the whole prayer to you. And I don't want anybody to answer this question. But I'd like you to think, have I ever prayed for someone like this? Lord, bless my dear friend. That's my prayer. Here's Paul's prayer. And I pray this, that your love may abound more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that the purpose you may approve the things that are excellent in order second purpose to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ because it's a causal participle you have been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ with this result the praise and glory of God. Did you ever pray like that for someone? This is, this is really an incredible prayer. So let's take it apart. Okay? This is going to be fun. I will now discern whether you really know the English language. <laughs> All right. pause praying to them. Uh, excuse me. Praying to God for them. What is... What is the key word of his prayer? That they might have love. Okay? Is everybody with me? All right. That they may have love. Okay. And then he says something. Love, that's going to result in two things. Knowledge. Dark 10, and that one doesn't work. Knowledge, um, and I, I really need to explain that. Real knowledge, and second one is all discernment. <clears throat> That's how, in your notes, it's a little bit of a different uh, way I put it in your notes. If you look, that your love may abound in the knowledge and depth of insight. That's all discernment, depth of insight. I don't think we're going to get any further than this today because you've got to connect verse 10 with that and you've got to connect verse 11 with that. But let's talk a little bit about this. First of all, and I'm going to assume you know this, but maybe you don't know this. The word that he's using for love here is agape. It's not agape, it's agape is how it's pronounced. (laughs) And so this isn't erotic love, This isn't brotherly or friendly love. This is a love, agape, that is a self sacrificial, other centered, I'm always thinking of others, not myself kind of love. Paul is saying, I I pray that um, this may abound in your life. Um, May abound is used of a river overflowing its banks in a flood. Get the picture? This is love that is just gushing over. That will result in real knowledge and discernment. Okay, now just think about that for a minute. A self-sacrificing, other-centered, I'm not ever thinking about myself, I'm always thinking of others' kind of love, that will produce real knowledge in my life. The word that's used there for knowledge is not just factual knowledge. It's deep, intimate, personal knowledge. It's an intimacy to that word. <clears throat> In all discernment, the way I translated it in your notes, a depth of insight. How can love be related to these two things? <coughs> How can a self-sacrificing, other-centered, I never think of myself, I always think of others' kind of love, produce that kind of knowledge? And that kind of insight? Now, I said it twice so you know it's not a rhetorical question I want to, I want to talk because honestly this is so how do we know this is connecting two things that we don't normally connect
3: so how do we know that this love is directed to others as opposed to the love of Christ so it would seem easier for me to, to perceive that you know genuine deep love of Christ would result in knowledge and
0: discernment you know if you, why are you separating the two?
3: Because
0: you did. <laughs> we okay. Spoke about All right. Well, now. Love directed to others. Okay. Um, and the others? The other,
3: you know, I suppose. Uh, other human
0: beings? Okay. To Why them? couldn't the others also include Jesus and others? I
3: suppose they could. Oh. <laughs> but it does seem to me that I will learn more from my relationship with Christ than I will
2: learn from talking to Fred here. Mm. I'm not sure, not that i you, Fred, but give me that.
3: You understand what I'm asking? I do
0: understand what you're asking. I, and I'm, um, that's an excellent, excellent question. It really is. Um, when Jesus was asked the question, What's the greatest commandment? Do you remember his answer? Love the, Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor's yourself. Jesus is connecting the two. You can't do one without the other. And that is how I think we should understand this. It's a love that abounds, gushing over its banks like a flooding river, to God and to other people. They're inextricably linked. So it's a because loving God means, among many other things, loving God means I am thinking about Him, focusing on Him, drawing Him into everything, and not myself. Loving God is increasing my dependence on him. Loving God is perhaps at the core of what Jesus meant in the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually poor. My own resources, I can't do this. But in a dependence on Christ that comes from a love for Christ, those two are linked. I can So if we're defining love and understanding love, as Jim, he's always way ahead of me. What I thought was going to take seven minutes, we did in ten seconds, so that's good. And we got that done. Now, how does loving God and loving people result in real knowledge, a deep, intimate, personal knowledge, and all discernment, or depth of insight? So it isn't only factual knowledge where you can rattle off all the attributes of God and define each one of them quite precisely. It also means, I walk with him. There's an intimacy and a connectedness with him. That's, that, the, the word, it's used here for knowledge, that word carries that meaning as well. <clears throat> you know, Don't stop. Keep going. anybody want to pick up the baton from him and take it further or not around, around the track Boy, yeah. Yeah, just the way I, I look
3: at it is if I think about it as the way Jesus looks at somebody I might prejudge somebody mm. but if I can learn that love that Jesus has mm. for that person mm. I might understand their motives I might understand how they're approaching mm. the conversation and through that I can gain an understanding of
0: where we need to go mm. in mm. any we have. So that's good. It's a love for people that corresponds with Jesus' love for that person. Now, let's put it another way you begin to see people the way God sees people. I'm constantly, constantly, constantly needing to be reminded of that. Uh, I mean, do you understand what I mean? That's that's what he's talking about. A love, a love for God and a love, consequent, resulting love for people that results in me beginning to see people the way God sees people. I mean, I love him in intimacy, but I begin... And I, I think that is so, um, that's so required for us. It's so antithetical to everything about us. I don't want to see people. I mean, in my own flesh, I don't want to see people. Because they wrote me, wrong I don't like people. I mean, I really don't. I just And I'm, I'm saying that in the gut as a human being. I mean, what I would love to do is just stay in my office all day and just study. But I've never done that in my whole life. i study a lot, but that's... All I'm saying to you, and I'm, it sounds like I'm elevating myself, I don't mean to do that, I don't want you to understand that. But as I've walked with God I all these years, I, I, I'm finally getting to the point where I see students, you know, those young adults who think they know everything and they really don't know anything and your job is to help convince them that they really don't know anything so that they can become the kind of student and eventually adult that God wants them to be. I don't want to see them like that. But God's perspective is, Jim, see the potential in that 19-year-old kid. See the potential in that guy who... He's just kind of coming apart at the seams. He doesn't know right from left, up from down. He knows Christ, you think, but it doesn't seem like it. Okay, see the potential in that kid. Uh, Lord, I don't want to see the potential. But to love, you see what I'm saying? The knowledge that he's talking about is this deep, personal, intimate knowledge that God has for that person. See them the way God sees them. I want to go to a money trip just for a second. <clears throat> Last week I finished reading a book. It wasn't really a long book; I read it in a few days. But called "Mission at Nuremberg." Just came out. It's only been out a couple of months, and it's about a missouri Synod Lutheran pastor by the name of Garricky, who was an officer in the chaplaincy corps of the United States Army, and was given an assignment. He'd been a chaplain during the war um, in Europe and was asked then by his uh, commander to go to Nuremberg and be a chaplain to the Nazis on trial for war crimes. Mm-hmm. And it is a tremendous book. I never, I never knew about that. I mean, I never even thought, I always thought about it from the perspective of these guys are getting what they deserve, which they do. You know, they, they were put on trial hold accountable for the dastardly things they do. McGarrakee led three of them to Christ. One of them was Ribbentrop. Do you know that name? Do you know anything about it? It's incredible. I mean, it's incredible how these men, in that kind of a situation, he would go in and you know, each day he would go into them and talk to them. In the chapter on Hermann Goering, I mean, Goering was so obstinate, stubborn. Oh, Jesus to me is just the wreck of a Jew. That's how he responded to it. Uh, there's no hope for Garing, apparently. I mean, he's just so belligerent. But uh, there's several other names. But uh, the remarkable ministry this guy had, and he talks, I'm going to put it in my words, not his, at the beginning. It's written about him. It's not written by him. He's been dead for quite a few years. But he, he says, this guy had, this Gehric is his name, he had to look at these people the way God looked at them. They're still drawing breath. There's still the hope that they can come to Christ, and three of them did, without question, and all three of them went to the gallows. As you remember, most of the top guys that were charged with war crimes were hanged, as you probably know. And um, he went. He went with them. He marked up the step, marched up the steps with them, and just had one final prayer as they were putting the head over there. I mean, it's, it's just an amazing story. Mission at Nuremberg, mm-hmm. and uh, I, it was just, it's, a, it's an easy read, it will not it take you long. It's, just, it's one of those books that you're shocked by the grace of God. There's no other way to look at it. You're shocked by the grace of God. I would not have grace on Hermann von Rumbentrop. I wouldn't. I wouldn't give Hermann Goering... 27 choices and opportunities to respond to the gospel. But he did. I just said, that's it. I'm done with you guys. You get what you deserve. But if I understand the gospel, we'll see those three men in heaven. I mean, that's, it's just, it's an aspect of God's grace. It's just, you cannot put that into words. But that's our God ruthlessly and relentlessly pursuing us with his grace. And even three Nazis, and then there's another level of Nazis that were put on trial that weren 't the big guys, and he administered to those guys too uh, he was i didn't I, for some reason i didn 't notice that whole trial took over a year it took over a year. it was a very long drawn out thing and I but you know that delay gave these guys opportunity and it was really it 's an amazing story of god 's grace it really is. And, and that's why I'm applying it to this uh, passage here. It's seeing people the way God sees people. That kind of knowledge, real knowledge. It's amazing, isn't it? And that's what he's talking about here. And then all discernment, you know, that what I put there in your notes, that depth of insight. That term means I'm beginning to learn and see insight into the consequences of my choices. That's that's great maturity. That's great maturity.
1: Did you see uh, on TV that uh, instructor was instructing that nine-year-old girl on how to shoot this I did see
0: that. Yeah. Oh, yes, and he, he, she couldn't control it, and it yeah. ended up killing him. I so did see that.
1: It showed his family praying for the girl, wow. telling her, don't, don't beat yourself up over this. Oh, wow. And,
0: you know, mm. that was
1: just awesome.
0: That's the same. That's a, I don't know anything about their faith or anything, but that's the same kind of thing. Thinking right. of someone else, not right. yourself.
1: They lost their father yes, absolutely. They opened, yeah.
0: And they're mm. praying for yeah. Wow. I didn't know that. Thank you, Woody. That is really neat. Jim, since
1: you
2: mentioned it, who who <clears throat> had this priest or this pastor go to these priesthood?
0: His his commander. his commander. Yeah, he was in the chaplaincy corps. So he was, you know, he was in the army, but he yeah. was a chaplain. <clears throat> he was he was assigned there. He did have, as I recall, he did have the right to turn it down, but he had been, uh, during the war, during World War II, he was in Europe, European theater, the war, uh, he, he was very, very effective, and he got that reputation, what we, well, we erased that, but that empathy, he just, and he, he was so helpful, so many of the guys during World War II in the European theater, and I suppose his commandant just saw in him the kind of qualities that would be necessary if he was going to uh, be effective. And I mean, this guy who was the commandant, he was a tough, tough guy, the way he's presented in the book. Oh my goodness. But he he really, he ran a very tight ship in in that whole Nuremberg thing, and organizing it, and how these men were looked over and cared for in the prison and so on. Um, And it's it's a really fascinating book. I I saw it, and I thought, you know, that's a, I don't know an awful lot about it. And then I read the thing, and I thought, my goodness, I really want to read this. I bought the book and read it. It was really good. I've recommended it as an example of what he's talking about here. <clears throat> well, uh, it's time to quit, and I'm dealing with uh, the test of my sanctification this afternoon. Somehow I have to get to Dundee Church, where I have another Bible study I teach. And Dodge is absolutely impassable right now. It's the greatest test of our joy in the Lord is to drive on Dodge now with the construction that you are doing or road repair, whatever they're doing. So I have to find, I, did, I figured out an alternative route to get from here to there, and it's not going to involve Dodge. So it's going to take me about eight minutes longer. So, Well, man, I hope this is, uh, you're getting a taste of this little jewel in the New Testament called the Book of Philippians. And I mean, if you counted... Um, Uh, We did five verses today. So at this rate, it'll take us till 2018 to finish the book of Philippians. That's not true, but anyway. Lord, we're grateful for this uh, time in the Word of God, this rich, rich little gem of the book of Philippians. There's a great promise that we can uh, apply to our lives from verse 6. You who began a good work in us, you're going to complete what you began. Uh, You're going to continue the work of transforming us into the image of of your son. That's both comforting and it's convicting, and it encourages us to be active. Active partners, in a sense, with you. As you do your work, we work, is what Paul says later in chapter 2. Thank you also for a part of this life of Paul as we see his deep affection and love and care as a pastor for this little church such that he would pray that the love just gushes over, like the a river dies during flood season, so that it results in seeing people the way you see people, seeing others, and loving you with all our whole so, hearts, whole mind, and strength, so that we can then develop that depth of insight, insight into the consequences of our choices, because every choice should be God-centered and God-oriented. That's part of the process. Thank you for these men. (coughs) Be with them the rest of this day. Help them in both what they say and what they do to represent you well. In Christ's name, amen. See you next week.